continue to make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Um, a reminder that Ecclesiastes is written down by a teacher named Kohelet. Um, so these are Kohelet's words to us. And I'm going to warn you once again, you shouldn't be surprised by this, by this being the third week in this series. It's a little depressing at first, as Kohelet seems to be, but we'll, we'll get there. So listen now for God's word to you. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there were the powerful with no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who have already died more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from one person's envy of another. This also is vanity and a chasing after wind. Fools fold their hands and consume their own. Better is a handful with quiet than two fistfuls with toil and chasing after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, the case of solid, solitary individuals with, without sons or brothers, yet there is no end to all their toil and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will, be lift, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie down together, they keep each other warm. And how can one keep one warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So every year, the Oxford English Dictionaries hand out their award for the word of the year. Um, and that word is chosen from a wide variety of words that are uh, debated and discussed. They are words that reflect the uh, ethos, the concerns, the preoccupations of any particular year. Um, but it's also a word that has this, a word or a phrase that has the potential to continue to have a cultural uh, impact. Um, so that word does not have to be invented or used for the first time in that particular year. It just has to rise to prominence and have that potential to continue on to be used. Uh, so, for example, in 2013, the word of the year was the word selfie, a word that we use a lot, a word that you might use more or less depending on your age bracket, and you may take more or less selfies depending on your age bracket. Uh, then in 2014, it was the word vape, as in a vape pen, the alternative to smoking, although we found out it's, even, it's still just as unhealthy for everybody else. And then in the year after that, it was the word emoji. Uh, we all use emojis in our texting. Some of us have a better emoji text game than others. Um, but then in more recent memory, in the year 2021, a word that we should, all be, uh, we should all be familiar with, the word vax was the word of the year. As in, are you vaxed? Are you fully vaxed, partially vaxed, or anti-vaxed? In 2020, we saw this huge explosion of uh, different words that made their way around. We... Uh, the Oxford Dictionary didn't nominate or didn't give out an award to just one word that year. They had a whole report called Words for an Unprecedented Year. And we remember some of those words, social distancing, lockdown, work from home, and of course, the, the all too familiar now, Zoom. As in, is this meeting in person or is it on Zoom? 
Uh, is it both in person and on Zoom? Can you send me the Zoom link? I don't seem to have it. I lost it in my email. And of course, Zoom has created this whole other uh, area of language, right? Someone starts talking on Zoom, you can't hear them. Can you unmute yourself? <laughs> Zoom, of course, created things like virtual coffee hours. Remember those? And for office workers, I heard about a thing called uh, virtual happy hours, <laughs> which I heard were the bane of everybody's existence. Now, 2023 is not over yet, and so the jury is still out on what the word of the year is going to be. But if I was to uh, promote a candidate for a word of the year, a word that has sort of captured our cultural moment, it's the term woke. Now, the term woke, whether you see it as a positive or a negative term, it has had a tremendous impact on our culture. It has become an incredibly divisive term an accelerant thrown on the fire of our already politically divided society. Ammunition in the latest culture war, being woke. But long before it was used as a divisive term, it has its origins in the African-American community to talk about racial injustice, to be aware of racial injustice. And so it's actually a lot older than you might imagine. All the way back in 1923, 100 years ago, we find the first usage of that term woke used by the, uh, the activist Marcus Garvey, who encouraged people of African descent around the world to be woke, that is, to develop a sense of political and social consciousness, a sense of promoting themselves, a sense of self-determination. And then in 1938, the blues musician, a uh, man named Leadbelly, used the term woke in a song to describe two black boys who were falsely accused of a sexual assault against a white woman in the South. And so he used this term to encourage black folks as they travel through the South to be aware of things like this as they happen with a disturbing frequency. And then in the 1960s, it found its first, uh, it was printed for the first time in a New York Times article. And then it really exploded back on the scene in 2014 following the death of Michael Brown and Ferguson. And from there, it's really transformed into a term that means somebody who is aware, somebody who is paying attention to all forms of injustice. So with respect to the African-American community who first used this term as a, a way of self-preservation, a way of being aware of the injustice and the violence that was often directed towards them, it's not a term that describes a political ideology. It's rather a term that describes somebody who is awake and aware and paying attention to the injustice and the pain of the world. And this is exactly what we find Kohelet doing here this morning, being awake, being aware, paying attention to the pain and the injustice of the world. And if you've been keeping track over the last few weeks as we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, the first week we had a little touch of nihilism from Kohelet, and then we had some hedonism last week, and now we get Kohelet being a little woke, being aware, paying a little bit of attention. And really, this should come as no surprise to us that Kohelet is paying attention. I told you all in the first week that Kohelet is part of what's known as the wisdom tradition. And the wisdom tradition is not unique only to Israel, but you find it across the ancient Near East. It's this earthy way, this sort of down-to-earth way of paying attention to the world, uh, answering and ask, asking these big questions about life and asking these questions of who God is, it all arises from our experience. 
So in order to even begin to be a teacher within the wisdom tradition, you have to be paying attention. But of course, the problem with paying attention to the world is that it can be a very despairing task, can it? It can be a very sad thing to pay attention to what's going on in the world. And this is exactly what happens to Kohelet this morning. He looks out at the world and he sees all of the injustice and all of the oppression that's happening under the sun. He says, look at the tears of the oppressed and there was no one there to comfort them. He's looking and searching for God to pay attention. This should, be, uh, this should not be that unfamiliar to us. We find this all the time in the Psalms, the lament Psalms, people crying out to God, pay attention to what I'm going through. And yet God seems to be absent as Kohelet looks out. But even worse, he looks out and the king is not paying attention either. Not only is the king not paying attention, the king is on the side of the oppressed, or is on the side of the oppressor, harming the vulnerable. And then Kohelet says, he says, I envy those who are dead, who no longer have to look at this injustice, and I'm even more envious of the people who have yet to be born because they've never even had to see it. Say what you want about Kohelet, but he's really good at feeling all of his feelings, right? He would have made, his, his passage this morning would have made great lyrics to one of the emo songs I was into in college. Uh, feels all of his feelings, all of the, the tears, of the, the injustice of it all. And this really underscores the point of just how difficult it is to pay attention to the world around us, to, to notice the things that happen to us. It is not an easy task. It is not an easy thing to look at the pain and the injustice of the world. And I, I think this is why, or at least one of the big reasons why, there has been such a reaction to a term like woke because we don't want to look. We don't want to pay attention. It is hard to pay attention to the painful past. It is hard to notice and be aware of the injustice that exists in the present. And so we hide ourselves from it. We inoculate ourselves from it. But the thing about wisdom is, is that wisdom is not just about knowing. If all that wisdom was, was our awareness, our knowing something that was happening, then I think wisdom would be cruel. If all wisdom was was that we had some knowledge of what was going on, I think it would be better that we didn't seek wisdom at all. But of course, wisdom is so much more than simply our knowledge, our awareness. It's more than performative posts on social media or just simply our knowing about something. It's about knowing what to do. What is the next action? I know what's happening, so how am I supposed to respond? And Kohelet, sitting here in this moment, observing the world, feeling all of his feelings like a good emo band does, does something, I think, really important. That by sitting there and allowing the pain, to experience the pain and the injustice of the oppressed, to allow the tears of those who are crying out, calling out to those in power, praying to God, allowing himself to experience it, he experiences it as if it's happening to himself. It's not, it doesn't seem to me that Kohelet is part of these, this group of people, this oppressed community. But he sits and he experiences it as if it is happening to him and makes it his own suffering. And if we are able to do what Kohelet does, if we are able to resist that urge to flee, to run when the despair sets in, to, to hide ourselves from the pain of the world, I think we can come out on that place where Kohelet does. 
what he realizes in observing the world is that what those who are oppressed need, what those who are marginalized need, what those who are maligned and forgotten and ignored need, is somebody to pay attention, somebody to notice what's going on in their lives. What he says, he says is that two is better than one is three, and three is even better than that. He says that what he advocates for here is this sense of solidarity, this paying attention. What solidarity really is, is it's those who are unaffected becoming affected. It's those who could pass by and keep on moving, choosing instead to pay attention. It's those who could click off the TV when the suffering comes on, choosing instead to watch and to notice. What solidarity is, is it's this realization of what Martin Luther King Jr. called, realizing that we are all caught up in this inescapable web of mutuality. That when one person hurts, everybody hurts. When there is injustice and suffering somewhere, there is injustice and suffering everywhere. It's realizing that when there is pain and injustice and oppression, the things that Kohelet observes this morning, when it's happening, it's not happening in the abstract. It's happening as if it's happening to each and every one of us, even, as if, we are, even if we are not affected. The African-American poet Micah Bournes, in his wonderful poem, entitled, Is Justice Worth It?, says this. He says, A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give yourself completely to business and you see money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits, and you work, and you work, and you work, and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. People always, something always trips, and people always ask, is it worth it? And that question, though understandable, is, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous, And it really comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from those who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And do you know why they never ask? Those types of people become friends with those who suffer, family even, because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, That's when that question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how how little progress we make. You never stop fighting for your own. That's what Kohelet says. We toil together. We work together. It's the realization that those that we seek to serve, that those who are in need of justice are our own. The poor are our own. The hungry are our own. The ones deprived of our rights are our own. And what they are most searching for, what they need, is someone to toil with them. That even if we are unaffected, especially if we are unaffected, it is to become co-workers, to join with them in that struggle for justice. That is what solidarity means. But what does solidarity look like? Most of you know I've been gone a bunch this summer, and you may be wondering where I've been. Um, 
The simple answer is I've been in Chicago a bunch. Uh, I was in Chicago one weekend visiting family, and then I was gone for a week on the Stage Youth Mission Trip in Chicago. Uh, Melanie Barish and I took a group of five students from stage, the Stage Mission Trip up to Chicago, and they all endured my incessant talking about how great Chicago is. <laughs> and the correct way to eat a Chicago hot dog, although they didn't listen to me. Um, so we, Melanie and I, we took stage up there. We joined in this mission trip uh, with two other churches, and it was unlike any other mission trip that I have ever been a part of. Um, we didn't paint houses or anything like that, which uh, there's nothing wrong with that. What we did is we spent the week learning about eco-justice, the ways that organizations and, and people in that community are working to address bigger systemic issues when it relates to the climate and how it affects the people in the city of Chicago. Um, so we spent time going around to different parts of the city, um, and I think all of us who went on that trip have one experience, one day that has really stuck with us, that we took back with us, that remains lodged in our memory. Uh, and for me, it was the, the, it was the Tuesday of that week where we went to a place called the Southeast Environmental Task Force on the southeast side of Chicago. Uh, it's in the Hedgewish neighborhood, which is as far south and east as you can get and still be in the city of Chicago. Um, and I'll confess, I grew up in Chicagoland, but I grew up probably about as far from Hedgewish geographically as it was for my day-to-day uh, -day concerns. Um, so we met with uh, the Southeast Environmental Task Force run by a woman named Olga. And the entire southeast side of Chicago is the old industrial, and still is in a lot of ways, the industrial corridor of the city of Chicago. And it was described as a, a neighborhood that is overburdened with toxic fumes and pollution. It's what's called a fence line community, where the, the neighborhood, they all live really close to the factory. So they live close to things like cement kilns and warehouses and toxic dump sites. Something like a million pounds of toxic waste a year are, 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 are sent into the air. And this is where the residents all live. And so what Olga and her organization do is they work to address these issues. They work to help try to make the environment safe and clean for their, the residents. She says that um, the things that happen on the southeast side, the, the industry that's there, uh, it provides very necessary resources for the rest of the city of Chicago, and yet this community is bearing the burden for this. And so Olga seems to be fighting this constant uphill battle, this constant working on behalf of her neighborhood, um, and the story she told us was from back in 2020. In 2020, a, uh, a scrapyard closed in what's called the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, which is actually where we were staying. Uh, Lincoln Park is this, this really nice, affluent, white part of the city of Chicago. So the, the scrapyard closes in Lincoln Park, and then a short while later, they announced their plans to reopen this scrapyard in the Hedgewish neighborhood, a poor Latino neighborhood. So this already overburdened neighborhood with pollution is going to have even more particulate matter sent into the air. And so it caused tremendous outrage. And there were protests. There was even a hunger strike surrounding all of this. People demanding that this, this scrapyard not be moved to Hedgewish. And the, the rallying cry was that if it's not good enough for the north side, it's not good enough for the southeast side. If it's not good enough for an affluent white part of the city, if it's not good enough for a poor Latino part of the city. And here's the thing that really got me in the story that she told us. She told us it wasn't just Hedgewish people, it wasn't just Southeast Side people who were out there protesting the uh, movement of this scrapyard. People from Lincoln Park also came down and stood side by side with them and protested with them. 
People who were unaffected, who actually benefited from this decision about the scrapyard, came down and worked for justice together, toiled together. Now, I wish I had a, conclu- I wish I had a happy ending to the story for you. I wish I had any ending to the story for you, but it's still ongoing. There was a temporary stay from the judge and injunction to not place the, the scrapyard there, but it's still ongoing. But Melanie and I were talking after, the, after our trip that Tuesday, and she said to me, she said, my realization is that I was a Lincoln Park person in that scenario. And it's just true for me, too. I'm a Lincoln Park person. I'm someone who is largely unaffected by the injustice, the pain, the oppression of the world, the things that Kohelet sees this morning. So what's my role? What's my calling? And the truth is, is I think most of us in this room are people who are unaffected, at least in some essential way, by the injustice and the pain of the world. The calling is solidarity. What those who are affected by injustice need is somebody who can toil together with them. If you want to see what solidarity looks like, it looks like, it looks like white, affluent people in Chicago coming and working alongside a poor Latino neighborhood. If you want to see what solidarity looks like, it looks like white folks joining together and working for racial justice with black folks. If you want to see what solidarity looks like, It looks like straight folks standing up for the rights and the dignity and the humanity of their LGBTQ siblings. If you want to see what solidarity looks like, it looks like the well-fed making sure that the hungry not only have bread for today, but also the freedom of not having bread for tomorrow. Solidarity looks like those of us who are unaffected becoming affected, caring enough, standing alongside of those who are struggling and laboring for justice. Because the truth is, We never, ever stop fighting for our own, that we are caught up in this inescapable web of mutuality. And we never, ever, ever stop fighting and working and toiling alongside of our own. Thanks be to God. Amen.